You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and with me... As usual, is my co-hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Paul, I have to let you know now. Soon, probably next week, but very soon, we're going to be having Aiden Campbell of Mahan and Company on the podcast, and you will not be my co-hostess with the mostest that week. I won't even have like a minute or two to you know, come on for something like the Ridiculous Driver of the Week or the Maybe. Driving Hero of the Week. or Maybe I'll let you on to be the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. I could be the ridiculous driver. <coughs> you got to do something that deserves it. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I backed up my car about a kilometer home. Like a kilometer? A whole kilometer? Yeah. Why? Stupid. Mm. I was 16. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, lots to talk about this week. <clears throat> There's quite a bit to talk about. Ontario. Is it? That's a pretty big story for Ontario. So... I mean, you and I have always been spoiled. Well, not always. You haven't always been spoiled, but I've always been spoiled here in British Columbia, where our prosecutors have prosecutorial discretion. Sure. So we have a, um, a standard that they have to meet, and that's a result of a uh, uh, report that was prepared by Stephen Owen a long time ago. But mm -hmm. um, when they're looking at a file, they have to consider whether or not there's a substantive likelihood of successful prosecution. Uh, and they have to continue to uh, revisit that as the matter is being prosecuted. And if there isn't, or they come to the conclusion that it's no longer in the public interest to prosecute it for one reason or another, they can do something else. Yes. For most cases, it might involve staying the charge. But if it's a case where the charge approval standards arguably not met, or there's issues, or there's some good public interest reason not to proceed with it, they can also accept a plea to a lesser offense. Sure. And in the impaired driving context, what that often is, is instead of a person being convicted of impaired driving or over 80, both of which carry a mandatory criminal record, minimum fine, and one-year driving prohibition, they can resolve it under the BC Motor Vehicle Act. And lawyers across the country should have that discretion. If you are a Crown Counsel, you should have oh, yeah. that discretion to be looking at your file and to make that decision because you are a lawyer and you are the one who's handling it. Uh, and you have to act pursuant to your duty to the court. Um, but we found that uh, in other provinces, it's, it is less likely that that will happen even if you're looking at it and saying, look, you're, you're, it's, not, it's not worth proceeding here because of this, 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 and this. Yeah. The lawyers will often... Prosecutors in Alberta and Ontario will often say, it doesn't matter, I'm running this. It doesn't matter, I'm running this. Yeah, well, we'll just run it and see what happens. Yeah, which to me makes no sense at all. You've got legitimate issues. You don't just run it to see what happens. If you've got a problem, you should, no. you should figure out a way it's to solve it. So you don't have to go to court. Not a good use of court time. It ties up a judge. It ties up a lawyer. It ties up a prosecutor. It means that... Occasionally, it case. means you're running a frivolous case because you can't win. Yep. Which but, you swear an oath in BC not to do. And some other case doesn't proceed. Exactly. <clears throat> Something that sh should proceed. 
more yeah. likely. And you can't say, oh, well, this is the only thing on the court list, so it doesn't that doesn't apply today. Well, yeah, something else could have been scheduled, though. Yep. It took up time. So I had a I had a trial in uh, Ontario in Brampton, and my client had blown 90 milligrams, had no symptoms. Um, there was there's no way he was over 80 milligrams at the time that he was driving. And even when a person is is recorded at being 90, you still can't say that they were over 80, uh, even on the basis of the fact that they blew 90. You can't say that their blood alcohol concentration was over 80 because you have no idea if the if the uh, you you're not drawing the blood. But the uh, the point there was I, I couldn't believe that they ran it, you know. And I'm trying to explain why don't you take a plea to something else. And ultimately, my client was acquitted. Um, there was good issues, uh, but I had to go back to Brampton twice, two trips to run that trial, where it would have made perfect sense. That's crazy. To take a plea to something else. Yep. Like a careless driving. Yep. And I have had pleas to careless driving in Alberta. Lots of times in British Columbia, obviously, because this is where we practice, but um, not so much in Ontario. But now you were about to tell us about what's happening in Ontario. But I never got around to it. Well, I, I got so distracted by the history of all of this. Um, in Ontario, they've finally relaxed the policy that says you cannot resolve it under the Motor Vehicle Act because they realized all of these cases, these impaired driving charges, they're continuing to happen. They're continuing to stack up. They're not getting dealt with because... They take a minimum one day of court time. And most of the courts are still mostly shut down. So they're not being heard. They can't be done remotely because you have to file certain exhibits in paper copy. Well, and if you have a witness who shows up and they've got the sniffles, you can't call that witness. So they've got, I think it was about 6,000 impaired driving charges backlogged since the pandemic began. Wow. And they're like, what do we do with these? Better start making deals under the Motor Vehicle Act. It's beautiful. I would be shocked if we have any backlog, anything similar to that in British Columbia. Because I know we've been just making, resolving these things the same way as we always have. Only there has been more as a result of COVID, but it's not a like startling difference. And there's they're all ones that probably would have made sense without COVID. Yeah. And you've got... We've got prosecutors who are intend to proceed with files even despite COVID, and they've got the court time. We've got trials scheduled for later this <clears> month. <throat> exactly. So, subject to our province going into lockdown. Well, and every witness being... Uh, is it 0.2% of the Fraser Valley's population is currently positive for COVID-19? Positive? Yeah. 0.2% of the entire population of the Fraser Valley has tested positive for wow. COVID-19 in the last 14 days. Wow. I mean, maybe the Fraser Valley will develop herd immunity, but it's not exactly working out well for Sweden. No, well, it's not working out well, and uh, it hasn't worked out well in other places where they've already had uh, large uh, outbreaks like uh, Italy. Yeah, because turns out the immunity doesn't last forever. No, so you should be careful. I am careful. So there you go. I wear my mask. Anyway, so this is a different thing for Ontario, and they're going to get a taste of it. Yep. And they're going to realize it makes sense. They're yep. also going to realize if they stop and look at this down the road, hopefully they're smart enough to do an analysis down the road to determine whether or not it changes anything to do with recidivism. So here's the thing. We were talking about this the other day. Well, There's I was in a debate different... on Twitter with this woman who said, you and I both know that impaired driving has one of the highest rates of recidivism. 
No, but we were talking about other things that uh, have been studied as a result of the pandemic. Um, right. And um, that things that I they may not have considered before to study the same way. And of course, this is just, you know, humans being thrown uh, a different uh, scenario and having to think them through. And this is uh, fascinating to me, but, you know, my concern is that Ontario, pretty conservative place overall, is not going to stop at the end of this and say, you know, has this been effective? Has this, um, you know, had the deterrent effect? Was it necessary? Was it ever really necessary to be prosecuting these people this way? Because I can tell you, I've defended thousands of impaired drivers. Me too. Um, yeah. And the recidivism rate is very low. Either that or they just really hate me when they reoffend. Well, you succeed in their file. <laughs> but I won. Never, I, I did have a file once where I, I succeeded for the guy and he was a recidivist and he had a different lawyer beforehand and uh, in the previous one. And, um, and uh, I know I was aware that shortly afterward it happened again and he phoned me and he never came back to me. And I did such a good job for him. I won. Yeah. Like I had that occasionally. With, with a guy a little while ago. As the odd person who's just humiliated or whatever, they're just too embarrassed know. to come he, back to you. He told me he, he wasn't happy because he didn't think I got the best deal that I possibly could have gotten, which was definitely not true. And I explained it to him and he's like, yeah, but these other lawyers are promising me things. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think they are, but. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, I just, I'm just, what I'm saying is that I'm hoping that there's some reflection at the end. I'm hoping Ontario Crown Council reflect on this afterward and think to themselves, maybe we should be more flexible. Maybe we should be thinking about the purpose of a justice system. A couple of purposes. One is to try and deter people. Mm -hmm. Two is to try and deal with the people you've got to keep them from doing it again. Mm -hmm. But those, once it's happened... Once they've been caught, um, you know, that, that is the purpose of it. You can't fix it uh, just by being, a, you know, overly harsh on sentencing, which is what we've got in this country right now, uh, or by just slapping criminal records onto 26-year-olds and 24-year-olds and, you know, 32-year-olds who their marriage breaks down and they end up getting it impaired. Yeah, I mean, I've had conversations with prosecutors where I've said, like, this person does not deserve a criminal record. And they're like, yeah... I think he does. It's like, he's never been in trouble. He's never had a speeding ticket. He's never done anything wrong before. There was a good explanation for why he ended up in the situation he did. And he's addressed the underlying issue that led to it. Done everything that he reasonably could do. Why? Why the stigma that's going to follow this person for the rest of their life? Yeah, I don't get it. I could never be a prosecutor. I could never prosecute people. Speaking Just of not doing everything thing. that you could reasonably do... You, uh, I shouldn't say that. I could prosecute some people, but it's not, uh, I couldn't prosecute people for impaired driving in most cases I'd be dealing them out. Anyway, sorry. I feel like I'd be a great prosecutor for impaired driving because <laughs> I'd look at the file and I'd go, well, that's fucked. <laughs> well, there's that. Stay, you would spot stay, all the problems stay, stay. and I always spot all the problems too. I, man, no, maybe I wouldn't spot all of them, but you'd spot all of them. But the, um, Dear Crown, if you're listening, I will be an ad hoc crown um, on impaired driving files against my competitors, okay? <laughs> Are you kidding? I couldn't do it. I'd stay everything. I would. I'd always find some problem. I'd be problem, like, that's I'm a breach. Sure. Oh, my God. 
Those be, readings are low. You know, I, I'd lecture the police, but it'd be information overload. Hey, you were speaking to the police this week. I was, I, yes, I presented to uh, the police in the Maple Ridge, Ridge Meadows Detachment. RCMP. Yes. Yeah. And I spoke with Grant Gokotro, who presented with you, and he told me after the fact that the uh, difficulty he always found um, in training police officers is information overload. Uh, and one would think that that's probably a problem. And I was just thinking that if I was a prosecutor uh, dealing with impaired driving cases, I would, and I was staying them, I'd be phoning the poor police, and then the poor police would have yet more information overload. Yeah. It's hard. It's very hard for them to do it correctly. I mean, it is hard, but it's also not hard in the sense of it's really just a series of steps where if in, one steps thing Steps in happens, an impaired driving investigation? Yeah. And you just fact, have to watch your video series? You could watch a series of videos on YouTube that are about a minute to a minute and a half long each and learn how to do it properly. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we should just, instead just of you going that. to, instead of you going and speaking to the police, you Burn should Burn it just, on a CD and mail it to police they, they, uh They can find it on, uh, on, on the YouTube. Um, other big news this week. There was... Finally, since Vavilov, a successful judicial review of an immediate roadside prohibition. Yes, and did Vavilov change it, is my question. No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. In fact, I haven't really felt anything from the judicial review standpoint change since Vavilov. Did you expect it to change? Yeah. 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 Well, it was a successful decision, and it was a successful decision because the... Um, the uh, judge who was hearing it um, came to the conclusion that the adjudicator had circular reasoning. And this is one of the most common things that we see in immediate roadside prohibition review hearings is circular reasoning. Yep. So what had happened in that case? It was a case involving a, a man who'd provided t two fail readings on roadside breathalyzers, approved screening devices. And the... Um, Police report had something that we see so often and something that just pisses you off every time you see it. Like, you hate this. Go ahead. You're staring at me like, I don't remember. What is the thing that... It's when the time of driving, the time of the suspicion for the ASD demand, the time of the demand, and the time of the first test are all at the same time. Yeah, it's absolutely... It's, it's absolute bullshit because you know it cannot happen that fast. No, I mean, you, if I guess if you were the Flash. You could test the person seated in their vehicle, but they almost never do that. You get to the narrative and you'll find that the person was stopped. They were asked out of the vehicle. They were shrivered first. Uh, and then the police officer questioned them about their time of last drink. And then the police officer went and retrieved the yep. ASD from their vehicle. And then you'll find all of that will be in the narrative. Yet on the report... It will show it all happening at the same time, usually rounded off to the 10 minutes of the hour. You know, it happened at 1.10 a.m., 1.20 a.m. Yep. So this one, this one, it said uh, that everything happened at 23.41. And this was despite the fact that the officer's evidence in the narrative was that there were like half a dozen samples taken before the fail reading. Yep. Because the guy wasn't blowing correctly, that he got a flow low, a flow ANS, a flow cut, a flow high. So it's just a lie. Just All a these lie. different status messages appeared. It could, couldn't be possible to have that whole sequence in that time frame. And what the adjudicator said about that was essentially, well, I, 
I recognize that this doesn't seem very plausible, but there's no alternative timeline of events before me, so I'm just bound to accept the officer's version of events. Which is some bullshit, just because the, and this is, I think, where the adjudicators fail to understand what's meant by the burden of proof in the driving prohibition review decision. The burden of proof, first of all, does not require you to provide an alternative version of events. You can point to some evidence, as the Court of Appeals said in Lemieux, you can point to some evidence in the review record and say, this is implausible, this is not accurate, this is inconsistent. And that can be a reason to reject that evidence. You don't have to provide an alternative. You can just say, this does not plausibly make sense. And then, if you do that, it is then becomes incumbent on the adjudicator to adjudicate that submission. And adjudication requires consideration, which requires examining the merits of the claim, to look at it and go, well, is this implausible? Yes. Do I accept it? Yes or no, and here's why. The why is the critical part. And I think, like, if you want to connect this back to Vavilov, what the court in Vavilov said was essentially you have to get to the why. You can't just make a decision and not show your pathway to the reasons, because even where the ultimate finding might be capable of being supported by the record, if the pathway to get there isn't sufficient or isn't, isn't reasonable then the entire process is undermined. Yes, exactly. And the point in that decision was the thing that we see fairly regularly, and that is essentially the adjudicator cannot resolve it in a manner that supports the police evidence without just ignoring some aspect of it, yep. which makes it appear to be reverse engineered to get to a particular result. Well, that was the second thing, that was the second aspect of the decision, was that then the adjudicator says, after there's all of this evidence of problems with the device and um, problems with the blowing, and there was a missing status message that should have appeared, and there was a time frame that was illogical, then Mr. Mason, in the case, said, look, like, these things couldn't have happened in this time frame in this sequence the officer describes. So based on the evidence before you, the adjudicator had to revoke the prohibition because obviously it couldn't, it, the adjudicator couldn't come to the conclusion that it was working correctly because the only evidence before the adjudicator was evidence that didn't support correct functioning. And the adjudicator's reasonings were, there is no persuasive evidence before me. I would note that persuasive evidence is the wrong standard of proof. Persuasive evidence is like beyond a reasonable doubt, not balance of probabilities, but okay. <clears throat> there is no persuasive evidence before me that the device was malfunctioning or incapable of accepting a valid sample. As the device was within its service and calibration requirements and accepted a valid fail reading, I find it more likely than not the device was capable of accepting a valid sample. So because it was a fail and because there was no service or calibration expiry that had passed, it must have been a proper fail reading, notwithstanding all of the other implausibilities about the officer's evidence that weren't consistent with the functioning of the device. And it comes back to the, um, the one thing we talked about on the podcast a long time ago, and that was the change in the legislation to make the burden of proof fall to the applicant. Yep. So a presumption that everything is right. And unfortunately... But that's not, that's not how it was meant to be construed. Well, of course, that's what 
you know, they're, they're going to argue that and say that, and the government's going to say that. But that's basically the way that it's been applied. Yep. Uh, and that's what we see the frustrating thing about it is we knew that they would say that that's not how it's going to be applied. And we knew, in fact, that that is how it would be applied. And you run into these circumstances, in this case, it's, you know, it's clearer than, than many, but you run into these circumstances where you can't really come to terms with the two different conflicting pieces of evidence. You've got the, the mm -hmm. individual saying one thing, there's no reason to reject their evidence and their evidence would lead to a defense. You've got the police officer saying something else. There's really no reason to reject their evidence except for the fact that, you know, they're using this checkmark box thing for their evidence. Um, and you've just got the two and then how do you resolve that? And then there's this desperate grasp to, <laughs> to try and reject the evidence of the driver. And mm -hmm. we see this so often. It's so frustrating. It doesn't inspire you in any way to think that this is a just system. And this is a good example, although in this case you've got, you know, good police evidence to show that this cannot have happened this way. Yeah. Now, while we're on the subject of judicial reviews, there was a very unusual judicial review decision rendered recently. I saw. I think I know what you're talking about. A case is called RB, and there was some conflicting decisions and unclear decisions from various aspects of the road safety BC scheme, <clears throat> in which the question became, when an adjudicator is assessing the standard of review, or sorry, when a court is assessing the standard of review that applies to an adjudicator's decision about whether or not the charter has been violated and, and whether or not to reduce the weight given to the evidence of the officer or anything like that as a result of the charter breaches, is it a reasonableness standard of review or is it correctness? Because, like, let's not forget, the charter is a matter of central importance to the legal system as a whole. And... What's unusual about this case is not that it was argued and that it was decided. I mean, it had to happen at some point. What's unusual is that nobody can access any of the material in the court file. Because at some point, a sealing order was applied for and granted in relation to the court file. How do you get a sealing order? On a judicial review. On a judicial review of an immediate roadside prohibition. And if you can, if it's available to one person, it should be available to everybody. everybody I mean, we've had be we've one. had some high profile people we've defended. Um, we've or have contacted us. They've got an uh, IRP, and they don't want to they don't want to dispute it because they don't want their name to be in a court decision down the road. But here, somebody managed to keep their name out of the decision and had a sealing order. And even more significant than that. And we're not talking about a child, right? No, <laughs> like, no, it's not a child. It, like, it, in fact, this person who got the sealing order and who argued this case made some really complicated arguments that dealt with a question of, of you know, really nuanced administrative law principles, the application of standard of review, and an unconsidered mm. approach to a Supreme Court of Canada decision that was released less than a year ago, and they self-represented. So who is this person that they're entitled to a sealing order, but also they're capable of representing themselves through that whole process? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a sealing order, so we're not going to know. And I guess, you know, they, as officers of the court, we're not supposed to be like, set out to to figure it out 
No, but, but uh, you know what you wanna, I want to know. Wanna, what I want to know, know is know who why. It is. You want to know who it is because you want to say, like, I don't think that it's it's right. Like, I don't think the I don't agree with the way the argument was presented. I don't necessarily agree with the decision. I think that a different tactic should have been used to address the argument. I think that it should be a correctness standard of review because it is central importance of the legal system as a whole. And I would like to read the written arguments that were filed, if there were any. I would like to read the petition and the response to petition and the authorities this individual relied on. I would like to talk to them about their decision-making, and yet I can't do that because I can't access any of this information. And we're supposed to have open courts. And, we're, you know, here I have a job to advance the law, ideally in a way that's favorable to my clients, and I'm stymied in doing my job because of this. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, I was looking at it and I'm thinking to myself, what I want to know is, what is the test in an IRP judicial review to get a sealing order? Because if that's the case, then everybody should get it. Well, it's the same test for any <clears throat> other sealing order. Well, I, in, a, in an IRP judicial review? Yeah. Well, what is the test then? How does there's, it apply to an IRP judicial review? Well, there's two cases that deal with it. Okay, tell me about them. I don't, you know, I don't deal with these oh, I don't, cases. I don't know the facts of the cases off the top of my head. We can no. discuss that next week. In the okay. 10 minutes, I'll give you. All right. <laughs> I'm not getting that. Well, maybe Tune in I'll next week it. for the discussion. Oh, but the point is, I, I, know, I wasn't prepared to go to this In the criminal place. law context, you know, that I deal with, I know the general rules and it's all laid out in the code. Yeah. But in the, you know, when it comes to a an a IRP judicial review, I do not see how you could justify a sealing Hiding order. your name. So it's not an offense. So where's the like, you know, negative public backlash, right? They've, they've taken but this you, position for so long that it's not an offense. So. I, I, yeah. So I don't get it. I mean, why did, why did the, did the government agree to this? Where's the hearing on the sealing order? I want to know what the test was that was applied. Yeah. I don't know. I want to know how they got that. Yeah, but we can't. We can't see the ceiling order. Well, we can't phone that person to find out who no. it was. If you are RB, I will protect your privacy, but I would like to know I, these things that I've just asked about how you were able to get a ceiling order for this. And also, what were your written arguments, if any? What were the written arguments of the Crown? Um, can I have a copy of your petition? And can I have a copy of the response to the petition? That's, uh, you know, when you think about the importance of this decision uh, and the importance of the development of the law in immediate roadside prohibitions yeah. across the country. Um, I suppose you know, I could apply to unseal <clears throat> it. No, I know, but I mean, it's, you, you just wonder if, uh, yeah, I, I have many questions. I can't see the sealing order, so I can't even see... Well, what the order is that I need to apply to unseal. Yes, and I don't know how we would get it, but we can think about that one. There's just that this you sent this to me, and I looked at that, and I thought, huh, you know, there's people I names I've people I know in IRP judicial reviews. Uh, we've had our own clients who you know have we filed judicial reviews for, and I, you know, you always wonder about whether or not their name being there will have some impact for them. Now, what was the impact here that RB persuaded the court that they should have a sealing order on their IRP judicial review? Well, especially because to see anything beyond the fact that there is a judicial review filed between RB and the Superintendent of Motor Vehicles and the Attorney General of British Columbia, 
you have to pay. You have to pay for access to the documents. Yeah. Like, how many people are, I don't, like, I honestly don't think that many people care about other people enough to sit down and search them on court services online. No, I know. But still, it is an issue. Indeed it is. And I want to know. Yes. Moving on. We have a very brief thing to talk about uh, related to the transit police. And more my concern about police failure to provide information in situations where there is a public interest to know what happened. Well, tell me what happened. So in this case, a transit police officer we heard earlier today was injured in a motor vehicle accident. No details provided. And then uh, a couple hours later, the story was updated to indicate that uh, the transit police officer was injured while trying to apprehend somebody who was uh, arrest uh, arrestable, uh, although got away, on a Canada-wide warrant for break and enter, um, and he dropped, allegedly, while escaping from the police, a bag containing a loaded handgun and a rifle-style pellet gun. Now, is that the guy who was in the photo? That's not the transit yeah. police officer? No, that's not the transit <clears throat> cop. Um, but what gets me... He's got me, great hair. What gets me is that... 33-year-old Sean Trevor Cutiford? Sure. What gets me is that this attempted arrest and escape did not happen involving the transit officer who was injured in the motor vehicle accident. No. No. It was another transit officer, independent of the one conducting the, attempting to conduct the arrest, who was responding to a call for assistance, who was involved in a crash at 128th Street and 93 Avenue. But the police, the transit police, will not give the public any information about how this officer came to be involved in this crash. Was he driving dangerously? Was he violating some type of policy on pursuit or co going code to something like what how did this accident happen there was a significant amount of property damage in the photos there's obviously an injured officer the taxpayers are going to be on the hook for his injuries where is the accountability it's very rare that they release this information um they give out a press release yeah, and they don't give out the information about the rest of it. Yeah, but we um, need to know the rest of it. Is this transit officer a driving hero of the week? Uh, maybe, but uh, the point is that they never they never give that information out. Nope. You know, we are right now in the Above the Richmond office recording this podcast, and years ago uh, there was an accident involving a um, an RCMP car just down the road from me. And I walked up to uh, Corporal Basquette, who was standing there, and there was a young officer from Surrey who had come to traffic court, and he was driving away from traffic court, and his cruiser was destroyed when somebody T-boned him coming out of the uh, uh, what was then an alley, and now it's a full-on street. Um, they put a stop sign after that. Um, and I was looking at it and thinking about the damage and everything, and the, the, uh, I, I got some information there that I wouldn't share with the public. Mm -hmm. um, about the rest of the circumstances, not, you know, it was more personal stuff from the police officers. Uh, but I'm sure that never made the news. I took some photographs of it. I was tempted to, to, uh, post it. I don't, maybe I didn't have Twitter back then. This is a few years back, but, uh, in any event, you know, sometimes it should be in the news and sometimes it shouldn't. But what I didn't like about this story was the misleading headline, 
um, and it felt like it was crafted by the transit police to deliberately obscure the information. Yeah, like you want to blame the guy who's running away on the warrant, but turns out he had nothing to do with it. Exactly. So there's a somebody's somebody ends up with a injured want, hip from yeah. a car accident. They're nowhere near where they're looking for the guy. Somebody else is chasing the guy. Yeah, and you want you know presumably sympathy for the injured officer, right? You want him to be the driving hero of the week. Well, I'm sorry. There's no driving hero this week. Just because of this? Well, because this guy was gonna if they'd given us enough information. Anyway, they, it's, it's so rare that they give out the actual truthful information. Sometimes it comes out later on, um, but uh, it's very rare that they do. Sometimes it comes out in a news story later on. It's very rare that it does. You know, one thing that I found very early on in my career, I'd be sitting in court and I would hear something play out in court, a sentencing usually, mm -hmm. and then the sentencing would be in the news. And it never felt like it was accurately depicted in the news because you're sitting there and you're going, yeah, no, that's a rational sentence. That makes sense. I, you know, I accept what the judge is saying here. This is, a, you know, real balance. And it would always be skewed one way in the news and usually skewed in a manner to make the court look like it was too lenient. Mm -hmm. um, so how often, you know, you construct our idea of the world based on the news, right? Uh, and other things, but part of it on based on the news. And how often is the news we know if you're actually there and a witness to it? Do you know is, it's is colored one way or another? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> we may not have a driving hero of the week, but we do have a ridiculous driver of the week. <laughs> Ridiculous driver of the week. Awesome. Yes. And this week, it's actually the passenger. That's the ridiculous one. Okay, so what happens? So, an Uber driver in Florida, of course, <laughs> was assaulted by a passenger when he was told that he would have to wear a mask inside the Uber. Which, like, okay... That's not that ridiculous. But what's ridiculous is that when you log into the Uber app every time now before you book a ride, you have to agree before you book the ride that you have a mask and you'll wear it and you're required to wear it. So why take an Uber? You could take a Lyft. You could take a bus. You could take a taxi. Well, those do you have to wear a mask too. Probably, yes. <laughs> so I don't know the taking Florida it out, rules. Taking it out on the Uber driver? Walk, swim, ride a turtle. Taking it out on the Uber driver. Well, here's the ongoing problem of COVID-19 is that we've had the mixed messaging about masks. Then we've got Trump in the denial and various other yep. flat earthers well, we in were, denial. We've we were others. driving down the street uh, not that long ago. And we saw a man holding up a sign that said, what are you, a dog? Why are you wearing a muzzle? Yeah. <laughs> not a muzzle i can bite you through my mask uh -huh. let me try <laughs> um yeah i mean it's uh i uh it's unfortunate that the population is not really paying attention some people are just have their problems again you construct your world based on the news back to that uh and your understanding of things and these are people are constructing their understanding of the world based on Whatever. Yes. Speaking of constructing a worldview, Paul, you have constructed a view 
of an alternative universe in oh, which... <laughs> I am Prairie Paul. <laughs> you are Prairie Paul. Well, and do you have a surprise for our listeners today? I do have a surprise, and this has been in the wings for a long time. <laughs> um, many people know that Kyla and I, on the side, like to write, record, and sing music. And uh, sometimes it's me and Kyla is in our first song, which is was released one year ago today. Okay, um, which is, of course, his lawyer told me not to talk to you, our, our big hit. Uh, since then, we've released a number of songs. Kyla has released a heavy punk song, yep. and uh, that's done very well. It's a good video, too. I know that I did direct part of the video. I you know, don't want to take all the credit for it. It was you, my vision. It was your vision. I told you what I wanted, and you exactly. stared at me, and you're like, I don't understand, but okay. But uh, it's like build I'm, me white. <laughs> I'm announcing, I'm announcing the debut today, right here, of my new song, Women Whiskey Lawyers. 5.15 today, the video will be released on YouTube, just in time for you to get home for the weekend. Women Whiskey Lawyers, that's where my money goes. And before you listen to Paul's awesome new song, make sure you tune in next week for another episode of Driving Law. Find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889. Here's Paul. Hey, barkeep, come on down here. I need another drink. I got a thought in mind. That whiskey helps me think. My second divorce just came through it set me back a bit money's always tight they say whiskey i should quit but i ain't gonna do that for some things i'll surely pay i'm living my best life i'll earn the cash another day women whiskey lawyers that's where my money goes Women whiskey lawyers riding high and deepest lows. Women whiskey lawyers in that order it does seem. Women whiskey lawyers, money only in my dreams. I bought some fancy things, satin lace and golden rings. My lady's head there on my chest, thought I was surely king. But money, it runs out, my queen will did follow suit. Turns out that she'd found my stash and taken all my loot. Cause women whiskey lawyers, that's where my money goes. Women whiskey lawyers, riding high and deepest lows. Women whiskey lawyers in that order. Does seem women whiskey lawyers money only in my dreams. Where does your money go? A question right and fair. Lost down the old commode or blown off in the air. Seems I'm working hard, but I'm getting nowhere fast. Pipeline in for weeks on end, I'm working off my ass. Play ball! 
Set out to find her, grab the keys for my half done. I knew where she was hiding when she went out on the run. I got no further than the gate, the sheriff, he was there. Threw me on the ground and said, well, you ain't going nowhere. Women whiskey lawyers, that's where my money goes. Women whiskey lawyers riding high and deep as lows. Women whiskey lawyers in that order it does seem. Women whiskey lawyers, money only in my dreams. Women whiskey lawyers, money only in my dreams. Women whiskey lawyers, money only.